1: The 2019 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule and the Outpatient Prospective Payment System Final Rules were released last week by CMS. We have two reports. Dwayne Abbey is standing by to report on the impact of the Ops Final Rule on provider-based clinics. And later in the broadcast, we're going to hear from Sean White. He's going to report on the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule. Also on today's Monitor Monday, health care attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. Targeted probe and educate audits are taking place in a variety of settings, including physical therapy. Reporting on TPE audits is Cindy Griffith. She is the Director of Compliance and Audits for ATI Physical Therapy. And Medicare Advantage organizations overturned 75% of their own claim denials from 2014 to 2016. That's according to the OIG. Healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel is standing by to report that story. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who's making
0: his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. Something is happening at CMS, and it makes me nervous.
2: We all know that when CMS releases rules, they do it on Friday at 4 o'clock. We know it, and we keep our weekend plans to a minimum for the first weekend in November, anticipating the fee schedule and outpatient final rules. Well, this year... CMS released the physician rule on Thursday at 4 p.m. and the outpatient rule on Friday at 9 a.m. Didn't they know my Friday was already booked and I had no time to read 3,560 pages? What's next from them? Writing rules that we can actually understand? Now, call me crazy, but I actually love reading the rules. I love reading how CMS changes the definitional words to meet their legislative goals. Remember five years ago when they redefined 24 hours? as limited to the time between two midnights to allow the two-midnight rule to be adopted? Well, this year, they redefined surgery to include non-surgical procedures to allow cardiac catheterizations to be performed at surgery centers, which, by the way, should scare the heck out of hospitals. I wrote about that back in July in Rack Monitor eNews. Even scarier is that commenters asked CMS to also approve stenting in surgery centers. CMS said no this year, but you know they're eventually going to say yes. And when you read the rules, you also find funny things. In the home care rule, CMS wrote, quote, another commenter stated that they were slightly confused by the use of this proposed rule as the appropriate form for these significant changes. Uh, Slightly confused? Shouldn't the commenter have used a 1 to 10 scale to rate their confusion? Now, the physician rule also has a section about pricing of supply and equipment pricing. I don't understand it at all. That I was amused by the data they presented. Now look at the, your screen and look at the yellow line. The current price $895, the proposed price $76,000, and the final price they settled on was $895. Really? And look at the blue one, 2,500 down to a proposed 30, but they settled on 600? It makes no sense at all. Now you're gonna be hearing a lot today about the proposed changes to the physician office coding, so I won't comment, but I will note one of the other things that CMS did adopt. Doctors can now get paid for certain phone calls with patients, but CMS mandates that each patient must give their consent to have CMS billed with each phone call since they'll be responsible for a 20% coinsurance. So what will a doctor do if a patient says no? Hang up on the patient or be forced to complete the call and give away their time and expertise. This could get really messy. Now there is some good news for hospitals. CMS will be allowing radiology assistants to perform specified um, imaging tests under direct supervision instead of personal supervision. Now personal supervision requires the radiologist to be in the exam room, while direct supervision allows the radiologist simply to be on the hospital campus. So the radiologist can remain in their dark room staring at computer monitors dictating reports. It'll be interesting to see if we see the incidence of blood clots in radiologists increase in the coming years since now they'll have no reason to ever
1: stand up. Well, that's enough for now. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, M.D. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And probe and Educate audits are taking place in a variety of settings, from physical therapy providers to skilled nursing facilities. Reporting on TPE audits at her facility is Cindy Griffith.
3: Thank you, Chuck. First of all, I want to give the context that ATI Physical Therapy is headquartered in Chicago, Illinois, and that we operate in over 25 states and multiple A, B, MACs and DME jurisdictions, as well as one DME MAC. We are currently participating in several targeted Probe and Educate experiences and have recently received the results of three reviews. We've been fortunate have had successful reviews thus far and have an experience to share specific to the Novitas JL Mac for review of CPT code 97530 therapeutic activities. Our initial welcome letter indicated that we were selected for review based on a comparison with our peers. The ADR letter requested 40 claim dates of service. Following our ADR response and submission of all requested medical records and supporting documentation, we received a results phone call from our reviewer that stated Novitas had determined there was an error. For one of the dates of service, 40 minutes of therapeutic activity was documented in our billing summary, but we only billed two units. Based upon the applicable Medicare 8-minute rule for therapy codes, the Novatus reviewer determined it was an underpayment and initiated payment for an additional unit of therapeutic activities. Upon review of the documentation, we determined that there was, in fact, an error with documentation in the minutes performed for therapeutic activities, and therapeutic activities should only have been documented for having been performed for a period of time associated with two units. We reached back out to the Novitas TPE reviewer to indicate that while there was an error with the time documented for therapeutic activities, with the claim dates in question, the required direct supervision for the third unit of therapeutic activity was not provided, and henceforth, we did not submit that additional unit of therapeutic activities on the original claim. From our perspective, there was not an error, and communicated as such, to the TPE reviewer. Novitas was able to immediately correct the additional payment they initiated, and no appeal process was needed. Fortunately, we were able to stave off the chance of receiving a payment that we would have had the refund as an overpayment. Perhaps a lesson in this. I think we as providers are under a potential false assumption that reviewers are only interested in overpayments, and in this experience, it demonstrates that they appear to be interested in underpayments as well. Both can lead to an error in billing and a potential false claim. As providers, proper supporting documentation is necessary, and we should only accept payment for services rendered when the appropriate conditions of payment are satisfied. Don't accept payment just because a Mac wants to give it to you. Only accept payment when it's appropriate. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Cindy, very much. That was Cindy Griffith. Cindy is the Director of Compliance and Audits for ATI Physical Therapy. And coming up at about eight and a half minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from Dwayne Abbey, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, and Sean Weiss. This is Monday November the fifth. It's one day before the midterm elections, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by.
0: Are you ready to sit for AHIMA's industry-regarded certified coding specialist physician-based exam? Well, don't sweat it. AHIMA offers resources to prepare you to sit with confidence, to achieve your goals, and to grow in your career. The CCSP exam prep pairs on-demand webinars covering key domains with an interactive learning session making it easy to prepare on your schedule. Gain access to additional study tips and a Q&A with a coding expert during the upcoming virtual learning session on December 19th. AHIMA encourages health information professionals to never stop learning or expanding their skills, and they are dedicated to offering you continuous support. Get all your exam prep materials at ahimastore.org.
1: Thanks, Clark Anthony, and we're back at a programming note. There's a very important webcast that's coming your way about the new RAC and TPE audits that can put revenue at risk for inpatient rehabilitation facilities. It's coming your way tomorrow, November the 6th, and it features a friend of this broadcast, Andrew Phillips. It's really great. You ought to register now to attend. And here now with the Monitor Money Risky Business segment is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. Good morning, Chuck. There's a ton to talk about today. So I'm at the HCCA Healthcare
4: Enforcement Compliance Conference in DC, and at the opening session, the chief of the fraud section uh, started by saying comments were not made for attribution and alluded to last year's conference where this segment reported on a statement that the DOJ would be intervening to dismiss some false claims act. Apparently, the DOJ feels that statements made at the conference um, are not subject to attribution and really shouldn't be reported on um, I'm at a loss to understand that entirely because it seems a little contrary to open government. I asked for clarification, and I think it didn't help a ton, but I guess statements aren't for attribution. But there was an acknowledgment that the news there is, should be disseminated to um, to clients and, and you all. So what did I hear so far? Well, nothing as big as last year, but there was some discussion about a couple of big things. So first, there's a new bill um, as part of the support bill dealing with opioids there is the elimination of kickbacks in recovery act of 2018 and emily has put a site to that in the handout it's public law 115-271 and it will be codified at 18 usc 220 i won't repeat that because you can see it in the handout tab but basically it extends or creates it creates a kickback provision uh, related to Opioid treatment, so it's creating a new criminal penalty. There were also some citations to uh, the number of health care cla- uh, false claims act cases that are out there. There were about 500 health care uh, false claims act cases last year. So, if you distributed them evenly, 10 per state, of course, uh, you know, California and Rhode Island aren't equal. The government intervenes in about 20 to 25 percent of those cases, meaning that the other um, eighty to seventy five percent the relator either chooses to proceed on his or her own or it 's dismissed. Uh, the government has intervened to dismiss in about a dozen cases or about two percent so it 's not a common thing, but it happens now let 's turn to the new physician fee schedule so there are a bunch of interesting things in there, some of which are clarifications which i wouldn 't uh, which i wouldn 't call as big changes. One of the biggies is. Discussion about physicians no longer needing to document particular information like in the teaching physician role teaching physicians won't need to redocument some material in many cases. I think that the premise that the physician needed to personally document this information is incorrect. They never needed to but I am thankful to the government for pointing that out in a couple of cases the clarification was important teaching physician being the biggest. Um, uh, There's also. Uh, A good thing, which is phone calls are in some cases now going to be covered if there was no appointment within the seven days preceding the call and no appointment within the 24 hours thereafter or the soonest appointment. Uh, That's a little confusing, but basically there will be the ability for a patient to call up and say, hey, do I need to come in for a visit? And if the answer is no, there will be a billable service there. So that's a nice change. Finally, I want to talk about an area where the new rule seems to be inconsistent. In many cases, CMS seems to be disregarding the fact that you are supposed to round E&M time to the nearest, uh, nearest level of service. So for example, if you do 32 and a half minutes up for an established patient where you're counseling and coordinating care, you can round up to a 99215, which typically records or requires uh, 40 minutes of time. CMS acknowledges in the new rules that the CPT codebook at page 15 specifically allows rounding of time, but if you read a bunch of the discussion, it seems to disregard that and suggest that you need to do the full total time. They're wrong, and Rat sings about this. Uh, Chuck, you might have thought of this as a love song when they said, you spin me, round, round, like a record. But in fact, it was an instruction. When doing time, you get to round.
1: Back to you, Chuck. That was Healthcare Attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredericks and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. David was reporting live this morning from the HCC Enforcement Conference in Washington, D.C. Thanks, David, very much. Medicare Advantage organizations overturned 75% of their own claim denials from 2014 to 2016. That's according to the OIG. Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel has that report. Good morning, Nicole.
5: Good morning, and thanks for having me. I'm here to talk to you about what I'm touting as the Medicare disadvantage organizations, the down and dirty with capitation. A Medicare Medicaid are moving solidly into capitating model systems, or maybe I should say have already. A central concern about the capitated payment model used in Medicare Advantage is the financial incentive for Medicare Advantage organizations, or MAOs, to inappropriately deny access to services and reimbursements for services rendered to increase their profits. An MAO that inappropriately denies authorization of services for beneficiaries or payments to health care providers may contribute to physical or financial harm and also misuses the Medicare program dollars that CMS paid for beneficiary health care. Medicare Advantage covers more than 20 million people in 2018. So even low rates of inappropriately denied services or payment can create significant problems for many Medicare beneficiaries and their providers. The Office of Inspector General, or OIG, released a new report September 16th, 2018 on the MAOs. When beneficiary and providers appealed preauthorization and payment denials, MAOs overturned 75% of their own denials during 2014 to 16, overturning approximately 216,000 denials each year. That doesn't even take into consideration the number of overturns by independent reviewers in favor of beneficiaries and providers at higher levels of appeals. Which begs the questions: why are the MAOs denying so many requests for services? And two, why aren't more providers appealing the adverse decisions? This new OIG report demonstrates widespread and persistent MAO performance problems related to denials of care and payment. For example, in 2015, CMS cited 56% of audited contracts for making inappropriate denials. CMS also cited 45% of contracts for sending denial letters with incomplete or incorrect appeal information. As you know, Medicare Advantage plans, also known as Part C, It's one way for beneficiaries to receive their Medicare benefits. These plans are required to offer everything that's covered under Original Medicare, Part A and B, with the exception of hospice, and may include other benefits as well, such as prescription drug coverage, dental, and vision. The appeals that were reviewed in the OIG report were overwhelmingly provider appeals, as in reimbursement issues. Ninety-four percent provider reimbursement issues to 6% beneficiary issues. High rates of overturned denials upon appeal are especially concerning because beneficiaries and providers appeal relatively few of the total number of denials issued each year. There are concerns that the Medicare appeals process can be confusing and overwhelming, particularly for critically ill beneficiaries. This may be one reason why beneficiaries and providers appealed only 1% of denials to the first level of appeal, reconsideration by their MAO or the Quality Improvement Organization during 2014-16. to CMS did not disagree with OIG's findings. In fact, CMS concurred with each finding. The OIG found that that CMS needs to enhance the oversight of MAO contracts address persistent problems related to inappropriate denials and provide beneficiaries with clear, easily accessible information about serious violations by MAOs. Missing from the OIG report was the specific CPT codes or types of service most prone to be incorrectly denied. I'd like to know whether the higher reimbursed procedures were more likely to get inappropriately denied than less expensive. So that is the down and dirty with Medicare Disadvantage. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the Potomac Law Group in Washington, D.C. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, CMS has released the final rules for the Medicare physician fee schedule and the outpatient prospective payment system. We have two reports this morning. Sean Weiss reports on the physician fee schedule, and Dwayne Abbey joins us later in the broadcast to report on the impact of the OPS final rule on provider based clinics. Here now is Sean Weiss. Good morning, Sean.
6: Good morning, Chuck, and thank you so much for allowing me to be part of this great presentation today. Uh, before I get into the specifics for the 2019, Uh, final rule changes uh, for the evaluation and management services, allow me to hit on just a few items within the final rule that are as significant. First, and please keep this in mind, CMS is not, they are not finalizing aspects of the proposal that would have done three things. One, reduce payment when evaluation and management office or outpatient visits are furnished on the same day as procedures. If you recall during the proposed phase, they had put forth that they would re-reduce the lesser of the services by 50%. So if you rendered a service that was less expensive than an evaluation and management service, they would reduce that by 50%. And vice versa, if you provided an EM and m service that was less than what the actual reimbursement for the procedure was they would re-reduce that by 50%. Second, establish separate coding and payment for podiatric evaluation and management visits. This will not be finalized. Third, standardize the allocation of practice expense RVUs for the codes that describe these services. Again, these three will not be finalized in the 2019 CMS final rule. <clears throat> For calendar year 2019 and calendar year 2020, CMS will continue the current coding and payment structure for evaluation and management office outpatient visits, and practitioners should continue to use either the 1995 or the 1997 evaluation and management documentation guidelines to document E&M office visits billed to Medicare. For calendar year 2019 and beyond, CMS is in the process now of finalizing these following policies. First, for established patient office visits when relevant information is already contained in the medical record, practitioners may choose to focus their documentation on what has changed since the last visit or on pertinent items that have not changed and need not re-record the defined list of required elements if there's evidence that the practitioner reviewed the previous information and updated it as needed. Practitioners should still review prior data, update as necessary, and indicate in the medical record that they have done so. Second, CMS clarified that for evaluation and management outpatient visits for new and established patients, practitioners need not reenter in the medical record information on the patient's chief complaint and history that has already been entered by the ancillary staff or the beneficiary. The practitioner may simply indicate in the medical record that he or she reviewed and verified this information. Third is the removal of potentially duplicative requirements for notations in medical records that may have previously been included in the medical records, as David Glazer talked about earlier, by residents or other members of the medical team for EM services furnished by a teaching physician. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Beginning in calendar year, 2021, CMS plans uh, to further reduce the burden with the implementation of payment coding and other documentation changes. Payment for EM office visits will, simpl- will be simplified, and payment would vary uh, primarily based on attributes that do not require separate complex documentation. Uh, what you will find in the last minute that I have to explain this to you is that, one, there will be a reduction in the payment variation for E&M office visits in the outpatient setting by paying a single rate for evaluation and management uh, visits level two through four for established and new patients while maintaining the payment rate for an E&M outpatient visit level five in order to better account for the care and needs of complex patients. And finally, they are permitting practitioners to choose to document the services for level two through five visits using medical decision-making or time instead of applying the current 95 or 97 e documentation guidelines, or alternatively, practitioners could continue using the current framework. So to sum it up, for 2019, we will remain with the status quo, but there will be some simplification to the documentation requirements. This will be in place for calendar year 2019 and calendar year 2020, with the expectation that they will begin the finalization of the payment reductions in 2021 and beyond, as well as further simplification to the documentation requirements. With that, Chuck, I will
1: turn it back over to you. Thanks, Sean, very much. That was Sean Weiss. Sean is a partner at Doctors Management and he serves as its Vice President of Compliance. Thanks again, Sean. As we said at the top of the broadcast, CMS last Friday also released the Outpatient Perspective Payment System Final Rule. Reporting on this developing story is author, educator, consultant, Professor Dwayne Abbey. Good morning, Dwayne.
7: Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Uh, I apologize in advance. This is going to be kind of complicated. Uh, I'm still reading, and I think we're all still reading the Federal Register. Uh, we're going to be talking today about provider-based clinics provider-based clinics, and you must distinguish on-campus versus off-campus, but otherwise you're going to have to stop and really think about this. Now, if we go to the Physician uh, uh, Federal Register, uh, this is where they are setting uh, what they call the relative adjuster, I call it the proxy percentage, they're setting that at 40%. Well, now, what is this? Well, uh, this is the amount that a provider-based clinic will be paid for the facility component of MPFS, in other words, Medicare Physician Fee Schedule. So, just keep the 40% in mind. We'll also need to allude to the uh, complement of that, uh, the uh, 60% here in just a moment. But anyway, the proxy percentage has been set at 40%, which is a little bit controversial. Now, switching over to the uh, uh, to the OPPS Federal Register, well, there's one simple one, and that, that's off-campus provider-based emergency departments. Now, I'll let you gather that one in uh off campus provider based emergency departments i don't think very many of you have these i've run into them from time to time but there is a new modifier the e r modifier uh, which was not really proposed they didn't really request any commentary on it uh... they just uh... uh... put it into place now, uh, of much greater importance, and I would ask you all to read the Federal Register with great care. It becomes a little bit complicated. This has to do with G zero four six three. Now, this is a hospital outpatient clinic visit. Line. uh... Payment for uh, the coming year is well, pretty close to one hundred and twenty dollars. But what they are saying is that even if you are an accepted, okay, even if you're an accepted uh, off campus provider based clinic, that your payment is going to be reduced for G0463. Now, this is kind of troublesome because Congress really has not mandated this in any way, shape, or form. They're going to do it over two years. You don't have to change anything. They're going to use the P.O. modifier as the uh, driver for this. And what they're going to do for the first year, which is 2019, is that they're going to pay you the 40% proxy plus half of the reduction. The reduction is 60. So you'll be getting 40 plus 30 or 70% uh, for 2019, please. Everyone verify this in the Federal Register also. We should all be receiving additional information. Finally, uh, the expansion of the uh, clinic uh, lines. CMS is going to hold off on this. So any kind of expansion, uh, treating services that are at an accepted uh, provider-based clinic and making them non-accepted uh, is not going to occur. And I think the reason for this mainly is that CMS anticipates in the next several years that all off-campus-based clinics are going to be paid the same as free-standing clinics. So everyone, please read it carefully. It is a little bit complex. All right, back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks very much, Dwayne. That was Professor Dwayne Abbey. Dr. Abbey is the president of Abbey and Abbey Consultants. Name's sorry. thanks again. Uh, we have a number of questions to come in we're not going to be able to answer during this broadcast, but we're going to make every effort to answer them offline because this is going to be a wrap for us. And I want to thank you very much for being with us today, and special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Professor Dwayne Abbey, whom you just heard, David Glazer, Cindy Griffith, Ronald Hirsch, MD, Nicole Emanuel and Sean Weiss. Thank you again for starting off your week with us. I'm Chuck Buck, reporter for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you again for being with us and have a great week, everyone.
0: Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.